I'm Matt Godbolt. And I'm Ben Rady. And this is Two's Compliment, a programming podcast. Hey, Ben. Hi, Matt. So, normally we have a plan when we do these podcasts. That is usually our plan, to have a plan. We, we have a plan to have a plan. And then this time... We spent so long discussing what it is we should talk about that I said, why don't we just hit record and go with it? Yeah. And that's what we're doing. Right. You know, we're doing it live. So what are we going to talk about? It's a very good, very good question. Um, We could go meta for a second and talk about how we decide what we're going to talk about. That's a brilliant idea. Yeah. Let's do that. I like that. Because you and I are both staring at a shared Google Doc right now where we have just as over the, sort of the last few weeks, we've been gathering thoughts on interesting topics, often over a cup of tea that you and I will have, like on a uh, an afternoon, and then we're like we get twenty or thirty minutes into our our coffee date, and then go, Dan, I really wish that we were recording this because this is gold. This kind of <laughs> in conversation is exactly the kind of thing we want to talk about in the podcast, and so we write it down. Yeah, and then when it comes to the cold light of day, we don't actually go, oh, that doesn't. It, it's not as as good doing it when it's staged, right? We had the really interesting conversation, but we weren't recording, and let's not try and pretend to make it something different. Yeah. So that is the current process, is a big Google Doc mm. and us scrawling notes all over it. Yeah. And we've got, well, what's that, two whole pages of thoughts. And you'd highlighted something which says trunk-based development as potential discussion today. So why don't we just start talking about what you meant when you wrote trunk-based development mm-hmm. and see if something comes out of that. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Yeah, I mean, it's it was sort of born out of um, some of our, some of our experiences at uh, the company that we're currently employed at, and contrasting that with some of the experiences that I know I've had at other companies. I'm sure you've had at other companies, right? Um, where there is, there are lots of ways to skin a cat. Why are we so mean to cats? I keep using that phrase. I don't know. We don't need to skin cats. How about zero ways? Uh, there are lots of ways I mean, to do cats, things. Cats get this it, all the time, right? There's cat gut, right? If you're going to yeah. make strings for a musical instrument, you make it out of cat gut, which uh-huh. I don't believe has ever been related to cats, but it sounds yeah. pretty horrible for the cat also. Maybe after you've skinned the cat, oh, man. you also, you, no, this is, this is bad. Cats have Moving rush, on. Man. Um, but yeah, there's lots of different ways to, um, to kind of do this, uh, where this is organize your code, <laughs> right? Right. Like there's, there's a lot of different ways. And, some of it can be kind of bike shedding, right? It's just sort of like, you know, a Coke versus Pepsi, this or that decision that doesn't really have that much of an impact. Some of it can have very significant impacts on the success of your project or the success of your company even, and sort right. of everywhere in between. I mean, you have that that expression about uh, Conway's Law. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Conway's Law is uh, a feature or a bug kind of depending on how you think about it. And Do we want to just quote what, what is Conway's law? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Conway's law is that the uh, an observation that the structure of your software will match the structure of your organization, right? So you, if you have a software engineering department with three different teams, um, and you tell them to build something, you're probably going to get a system in three parts, right? Right. Um, Seems obviously right 
without like even yeah. evidence, right? Many people, <laughs> which is a dangerous that. thing in general. But it, it, we've observed right. that it is generally true. Yeah, I mean, it's an observation, right? It's sort of like looking up at the sky and saying, like, I see that the sky is blue, and that's the blue sky observation. <laughs> Do you also right. see the blue sky observation? Ah, it's we intersubjectively share the blue sky observation. <laughs> well, that's amazing. Right. So it's something that people observe, right? Like when you when you build software in an organization, the structure of the software tends to match the structure of the organization, right? And right. the question is, is this a bad thing? I mean, I, I think of it as a thing, right? Whether it's good, bad, whatever labels you want to try to throw on, it, throw on it, this is a thing that happens. So you can think about it in whatever terms you want, but it's a thing that happens. You should either work with it or have it work against you. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. There's there's really only two things, right? Either you go with it and say, okay, I'm gonna. You, you said this before. It's either a feature or a bug, depending on which way you look at it. Yeah. And you, it probably makes sense to choose to see it as a feature and say, how might I arrange my organization such that I get the code arrangement that I want, or how do I make sure the code arrangement appropriately mirrors the organization I would like to build around it? Right, right. And if you have some preconceived notions about how your organization should be structured. Or how your code should be structured, and those two things aren't in alignment, you're going to have a bad time, right? That if makes you, sense. If you think, well, we should have four different teams, and you have one giant code base, it's going to be real hard to have four different actual teams, right? Like, you might have an org chart yeah. with four groups on it, but that doesn't mean you have four teams. So, all of those things can have a pretty significant impact on your success, and so it's important to kind of think about them. And some different ways that I know I've seen of just sort of structuring, I'm just going to say chunks of code. You could call them projects. You could call them right. things. I don't know what you call them, actually. But I, I almost always think of things, these days I tend to think of things more in, repos in terms of repositories just because of like GitHub and open source and all that, yeah. right? Like that's just sort of my brain has been warped to that <laughs> after, after years and years of GitHub. But remember, there was a time before GitHub. Oh, it, man. it seems odd that you know you'd have to go and find some random CVS repository and pull from something, or God help you, SourceForge, which still exists. I don't know how, but there are still <laughs> projects that are hosted on SourceForge, which just seems like a terrible waste of your time to visit. But yeah, yeah, that was a those were dark times, man. Oh, right, man. <laughs> just tarballs occasionally. Still can't roll up to a CVS and not think it's the pharmacy repository in CVS. <laughs> like that's just they even have the slash there. Uh. Every time oh, I gosh. see it, I'm just like, that's the pharmacy repository. And then there, there was there was Perforce. Yeah. Um, and then there was Subversion, uh, Subversion of course, which was yep. kind of the... the mm -hmm. And of course, there was Visual Source Safe, right. which was none of those words. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That's just my favorite expression uh, for that. Okay. So, so moving off of source control, because whatever <laughs> we... I don't think we've had... <laughs> Source control has not uh, been a topic that we've discussed yeah, before. Yeah, and, and I, nor I should feel we. like these days it's just kind of like use Git, right? There's not really much to you debate just about. Except, and Git, Git is the like the least worst yep. thing. Yep. But getting back to like the environment that you said, you were saying about repositories being like the unit that you think, right? Of, which is right. Where right. I derailed you. Yeah. So it's like we like you can have a debate about mono repo versus multi repo, which is certainly a debate that I've been a part of from time to time. And, you know, do you... I've never, very rarely not been in that debate because you're either in one state or the other and there are always the few vocal folks who have very reasonable reasons to move to the other mm -hmm. uh, approach. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, like, it's either a tooling problem 
or an org problem, or if your org's big enough, you need a tool department to manage it. You know, very, very large web search companies that I've worked at before have had entire departments devoted to making sure that their giant monorepo is manageable given the way that they would like to administrate it. And then, of course, if you have worked at one of those places, you think monorepos are the best because, like, look at all these benefits you've got. You know, I can just pull in code from some other part of the repository without really thinking about it. It's really trivial. It's really easy. There's no build issues. I just, it's just all there. It's all there. I can, mm-hmm. you know, git grep across the whole code base. How amazing. And then you don't realize that that doesn't necessarily work when you move to like a four person company. And you don't have a giant team of people that are administrating the systems that make that feasible, be it the build systems themselves, be it the source control, um, code review stuff, be it like code owners. I mean, obviously GitHub is starting to pick up all of these things and we're starting to have those, we're starting to have those kinds of features come. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's a thing. Um, and obviously then if you are bitten by that, you might decide it's just easier. Hey, I don't need to jump through all these hoops. I just want to make a little repository in my style, in my way, away from the rest of the code base so that I haven't got thousands of other um, commits uh-huh. polluting my history or I don't have to fight with someone for a continuous integration server slot or you know merge conflict, blah, 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 blah. I've got my own little way. So they're, they're both stable places to be. Uh-huh. The problem is we live in this extraordinarily high-dimensional space of trade-offs, right, that is engineering. Yeah. And any one set of of uh, issues is only one possible solution in a set of equally valid solutions to the problem of, like, can we work effectively? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, what would you do in – I don't think I've ever asked you this, so let's let's discover that we suddenly have a big uh, difference of opinion. <laughs> or, or, or not. Yeah. We'll be fine. What would your natural tendency like? If we were, if you and I were to start up a company and start developing with, say, like fifteen developers, just picking a sort of mm-hmm. big enough to be multiple teams, but not so big as it's like an unwieldy setup, you know? And we've got like three or four things to do. Yeah. Would you go for the monorepo or a multi-repo? What's your sort of default thought? So I think it entirely depends. I'm going to answer your question very specifically, but I'm going to start with what sounds like a wishy-washy answer. Um, <laughs> okay, okay. I think it entirely depends on the people involved and the problem that you're trying to solve. Because again, there's this deep relationship between the code and the organization, right? And you have to keep those things yeah. in sync or you're going to have pain. And so you need to think about who are the people on my team? Who are the people in, my, in this group? that want to work together, right? Either because they share, you know, like a common technology, like, oh, these are the C++ programmers and these are the JavaScript programmers or whatever, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, these people have worked together before and they know that they work together well and that was half the reason we hired them because we know they all work together well. So it would be kind of a Got shame it. to yeah. split them up, right? So think of the... Because the, the, the people parts of the organization, I feel like are much harder to change. I kind of have this rule that People don't change until they do, right? <laughs> Which is to say, if your plans depend on someone changing, you need to get some new plans because they might change. You never know. People change. But if your success depends on this person doing something that they've never done before and have shown no inkling before to do, uh, you need to get some new plans. You so, make a very interesting observation. That is kind of the, the, the good advice to give somebody who's planning on getting married to somebody else. <laughs> Like if is, if your future happiness depends on changing that person to be someone that they aren't right now, yeah, 
it's probably not a good idea to get married to that person. They're, they're yeah. not going to change. They might change. They might. They might change. change. You, you have to understand. People yeah. do change, and that's, yeah. of course, fine. And yeah. many people improve and all that kind of stuff. But like, if, the, if you're betting your future on it, <laughs> probably better not to. And yep. I guess to an extent, you know, there are a lot of similar similarities between getting married to someone and hiring somebody. Right, you're, yeah. you're bringing someone in. You're going to spend a bunch of time with them, probably more time than you spend with your spouse. I mean, that's exactly COVID right. notwithstanding, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. more waking time with them. You've got to work closely. There's going to be conflict from time to time. There's going to be differences of opinion. You need to be able to trust that you can get on with with with, with a sensible way of getting uh, through those differences of opinion. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and it's very expensive to get rid of them. Uh, if it turns out that it wasn't a good, a good hire, which is not not a good way to think of the thing, right? Right. No yeah. one goes into either of those things expecting the for for um, the the worst outcome. Yeah. So that makes sense. You don't don't expect folks to change. Mm-hmm. Um, so design again as if that's a feature, not a bug, right? Right. Hey, right. these people work well together. Let them yeah. work in the way that's most effective for them. Exactly, exactly. And in a lot of ways, this is just another kind of engineering. You're just solving for constraints, right? The constraints of this company are these four people work really well together. Uh, we can try to break that constraint just as you can try to force, you know, a uh, type to be cast into something else and you can kind of squeeze it into the box and make sure all the bits align and you're fine. Is that really what you should be doing? Uh, well, probably, probably not, not, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you can if you need to, but probably not. It's like um, you, you just need to solve for this just like you'd solve any other constraints. And my argument is, is that the people are the hardest and most expensive thing to change. And so, you should start with the people and then work back to the organization of the code, right? Right. So, if you have 15 people that all worked at Google and all worked in the monorepo – and really liked it, and they all sort of understand how it's supposed to work, and two of them are willing to be the tools people that build all the tools to make that work, take them on a repo. Sounds like yeah. it'll work great. If yeah. you have three people that worked really well together, five other people that hate those three people, and then the remainder of your people are just like, ah, I don't really care, whatever, make sure that you have at least two teams, and make sure that the boundaries between those, <laughs> those code, that well, code ideally, is very I mean- well defined. Hate is very strong there. Let's just say don't work effectively <laughs> don't together. Don't enjoy working with, right? Right, I mean, I okay. I worked at companies where there were people that just really, you know, <laughs> didn't for get various on. reasons, political various reasons. or otherwise, oh, yeah. just didn't people. like each other, but you go to war with the army that you've got. So, you know, Check. That, yeah. that's how it is. And you got to think about this stuff, right? If you try to argue these things, I think, entirely based on the technical merits, you have to think about the technical merits. But if you only look at those, I think that you're going to wind up in a really bad place. You have to, you have to consider more. That makes sense. I, I, I don't know if it was you I was talking with about this earlier in the week, but I was definitely talking to somebody about uh, a, a couple of people that I was working at a previous company where we'd reached a sort of nirvana state where we didn't need – we weren't really big on pull requests and that kind of stuff or code, formal code review. We'd obviously read each other's code as you went through it and sometimes just go through the log and just see what the other people have been doing. But like, we had reached this point where you, it was almost difficult to tell who had written what code. Mm-hmm. All of the code yeah. looked and fitted together beautifully. We had kind of come to a gestalt mindset about how to approach a problem such that you could, if there was three different ways of, of solving a problem, you could probably you could bet good money that in a vacuum – the four people that were working on this team 
would probably solve it in the same way. We're using yeah, almost identical, yeah. you know, naming conventions, algorithms, a- approaches. And that was a beautiful, that's almost like a flow state for a team, right? Mm-hmm. You're kind of yeah. interchangeable. It was, it was wonderful. And it meant that we never really had any conflict. We didn't think, think about it. We just got on with the job at hand. It was like a high point in my career to be working in a situation where I was just churning out code and there was nothing really stopping me and, and not even within the team. The team felt like it was moving forward. And that could easily be a bubble. Now, in that particular environment that we were in, we were in our own bubble. We had our own build system. We had our own CI setup. We had our own deployment that was slightly different from the rest of the team because we felt strongly as a two or three of us that this was how it should work. And it overlapped like 80% with the rest of the team uh, it helped that we were in C++, everyone else was in Java, so that there was yeah. a, an obvious like line that we could draw. But then we, we kind of widened the line a bit and said, no, we think it should be done this way. And so we are going to do it this way, and we'll make sure that we work with you, we interoperate with you. Yeah, yeah. So I guess I, what I'm trying to do is uh, citing that as both it was – I'm very lucky to have had that situation, <laughs> but also that that is a sort of natural yeah. occurrence, I think. Yeah, at least it appeared natural. Maybe my my team lead was uh, was actually maneuvering it that way because he knew that things were going to work better if it was that way. But you know, possible. Uh, but you know, it was. Our, it, it sounds like we had, had stumbled on a nice low point or a high point in the in the multi dimensional space where that worked really well for us. And and uh, both the Conway's Law version of like we were our own little team in our own little world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny because it's sort of like you guys had that sort of independence, right? Of, of being able to do things your own way um, because you were in C++. And sometimes that's a convenient excuse for creating that, but honestly, maybe you should do that on purpose, right? Like if, if yeah. you have a group of people who are all C++ programmers, that doesn't mean that they should all share the same build system or share the same make file or share the same project structure just because they're all in the same language or even using the same technology, Right. Like it's much more about what the people who are going to be tasked and responsible for solving the problem want, and how they can work together effectively. Um, I've said this thing for a while uh, that a team is a group of people who succeed or fail together, and succeed is sort of a, an interesting word in that phrase because you know it can mean sort of different things, and it's sort of a the definition there is a little fuzzy, a little bit on purpose, but. Success for most programmers looks something like being able to come into work every day and have the experience that you just talked about, right? Like, yes, there's financial success, and that is a necessary but not sufficient uh, portion of being successful, I feel like, as a programmer. But real sort of, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs stuff, self-actualization comes from coming into work, being able to work effectively, do your best work, do work that you can proud of, that you're proud of, and solve a real problem. And if you know, if that's what you're optimizing for, then I think you should be much more cognizant of what group of people can I assemble as a team that all see success in the same way, that all operate in the same way to create that success, that will not create conflict between two people because they have different definitions of success, right? Interesting. Because then you don't have a team anymore, right? Yeah, that's a really, really good... um yeah, I hadn't really thought about it. That's a great characterization of what makes a team, right? Because you can define a team as these all people are working like notionally together. They have a tech lead and he's right. in charge of them and they yeah. have a manager and she's in charge of that, whatever, you know, like that setup. And then, you know, and that's defining it using Conway's law from the top down. Like, hey, your team is defined by the org structure. Yeah, yeah. But then you've right. got the team of like, well, 
this person, they want to do everything as beautiful functional programming. And that's mm-hmm. really their goal. Their goal is to mm-hmm. turn the world into Lisp or the world into <laughs> right. whatever. <laughs> right. right. And we've all yep. worked with people that have yeah. you know, various bends and we, you know, we've all been guilty of similar things, right? Yeah. Um, you've got, uh, and then other folks who are just like, no, um, it's got to be just as fast as possible or other people that know I want to refactor it or it's going to be testable. Or, you know, and mm-hmm. obviously there's a, there's a, there's a sort of core of things that are just required to, to be successful. As you say, necessary, not necessary, sorry, sufficient. Necessary, not sufficient, or whatever the right way around yeah. is. Um, but yeah, if you get a, a group of people like in the, the way I described before, where we all looked at the code and we're all like, "No, the code isn't done unless it looks like this," <laughs> where right. this was right. how we all wrote the code by that point. So that's that's an interesting one. So can I ask a question about that though? Because the it sounds great, and it sounds amazing, and it's something that I've been thinking a lot about recently. And the, is there a problem that you end up with? A group of folks who just think the same way is that is that a problem? I mean, it, obviously, from a diversity point of view, diversity of viewpoint, and all the other axes we measure, you can you can get into a really bad situation if you just say yeah. no. Only people that think like me and work like me can work together. Yeah, yeah. I I so I have some very nuanced views on this. I mean, first of all, from like a cultural diversity standpoint, I think you need to be as diverse as possible, right? Like, never do you want to give up on those kinds of constraints ever like mm-hmm. try to try to make your companies your teams as as culturally diverse as you possibly can because you'll just make you better problem solvers right people from different experiences will have different insights and you'll get different solutions that are more holistic while and- we sit here looking at each other two 40 something white men our backgrounds <laughs> alone yeah. have already shown yeah. us that you know, measuring that one tiny dimension yeah. seeing the world in two different ways is very very valuable and just to have more dimensions to that sounds right. the more the merrier right the more yep points the better absolutely i personally think that it is completely fine and maybe even more functional to have when it comes to sort of like technical diversity right like different ways ways of of problem solving that are not necessarily cultural but are Mm-hmm. You know, technology based, right? Like the classical functional programmer versus object oriented programmer, for example. Right. Okay. Right? Yeah. 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 That level. Something yeah. like that. Right. I think it is very reasonable to have within a company a diverse culture, but within a team, basically a monoculture. Right. I do not think that's harmful. And in fact, and you, this is a mono technoculture. For- mono technoculture. Right. Like all the functional programmers grouped together into a team. That's fine. You don't need to split it up so that there's two functional programmers and two object-oriented programmers on every team, right? That's sort of like a little bit of a straw man, but that's kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah, right? I, I get. I see what you're saying. Okay. Yep. I, I don't think it's harmful to say we're going to take all the closure Lisp folks and put them on a team and give them the tools that they need and build something in closure. Right. And then that's a monoculture from that sense. On that very specific point, I've had so one of the very first uh, team I came into uh, when I joined the company where you and I met was uh, a desk where there were there was some closure and I ended up pair programming with somebody in closure and it opened my mind to the whole idea of functional programming and like, mm-hmm. I was a very very dull boring procedure not procedural what they call um, imperative programmer programmer like I mean. As you know, I've crawled my way up the stack from assembly. So, you know, that's how I think about the world. It's yep. one statement yep. after another. Yep. And to see this very implicit, very 
much more abstract and different way of thinking about it. I found it extraordinarily irritating mm -hmm. for the first couple of weeks because I'm like, I just want to do my job. Why am I pressing about with this? This seems so much harder. Yeah. And then I had that moment of realization and I, my experiences opened up. And so I was exposed to something new and I learned a ton from that. And I, I resolved at that point to try and make sure that I look for those kinds of opportunities mm -hmm, and take mm -hmm. them every now and then. Obviously, you know, this is the exploration versus exploitation, right? If right. you've got a good team that gels well together, sometimes you want to just say, all right, you four folks, you go off and you do your thing and that's great. But every now and then you probably do want to kind of perturb it a little bit, a little bit of simulated annealing. Like, yeah, hey, we've got yeah. this – this uh, this girl wants to come in and do this thing over here, and you know she's she, her background is in is in uh, you know uh, I don't know genetics, and so maybe you can work with that and do something. Either there's something else coming mm -hmm. in where it, it might shake it up a bit, and then everybody learns something. But I guess you have to be super super careful that you don't put people in awkward positions, particularly if they're the person coming into an established team and they're the, the outlier, as it were. Yeah, yeah. But well, like in my case, I was the outlier because I was just the weird C++ programmer <laughs> being dumped into a Java enclosure department, you know. Right. But I learned a ton and I was glad of it, but... I mean, I going back to the metaphor of this was sort of just a form of engineering, there are always trade-offs, right? And if you do some of the things that I'm talking about here, there are trade-offs. And one of the trade-offs is that you will have less... Fewer, you'll have fewer opportunities to get the kind of exposure that you had working in Clojure. And, you know, my general theory on that is that you just need to be aware of that and you need to solve it in a very specific way, which is you need to move people around slowly. If you move people around right. quickly, that will be very disruptive, right? But you need to have a career path for the people in your organization. This is something they're going to want. This is something you need to give them. This is like, you're not just going to be on this one closure team for the rest of your time at this company. Otherwise, the time at this company is going to be pretty short, right? You're going to get sick of it or you're going to want to grow or you're going to want to do something else. Uh, or not, right? Again, people don't change until they do, right? Maybe you yep. do have people <laughs> that just want to stay there forever and that's fine, right? So, you need to be able to handle both cases. And so, one of the things that's really important is understanding that within the team, there is a little bit of a culture. Like there's there's usually a little bit of a, of a esprit de corps. It's this thing that you're kind of talk about where you had these four people that you worked with and everybody just sort of like had mind melded, right? And like they all, mm -hmm. everyone knew what to do for any particular situation, right? I would say that's a team that is probably ripe for either moving somebody out or moving somebody in, assuming that there is somebody that wants to do that, right? Because what you have is a very, it's almost like a sourdough starter, right? Like you have a very healthy, strong <laughs> sourdough starter. That's a perfect analogy. now it's time to make some bread, right? Like you're going to pull somebody out, you're going to put them somewhere else, and you're going to see what happens. I mean, that team was two to start with. That was me and uh, the, the team lead. And we, it did take us a while to find our, our level, right? Um, I think I've alluded to to people before who just sit down, think a lot, and then type out the right answer. Mm -hmm. That was my my lead. He he was very much the think about it a lot, and and less on the actual test because his code didn't ever really go wrong. And there was only one of him right when I joined, and so then I joined. I'm like, <laughs> I I don't know what I'm doing here. I need I need the the safety net of of more testing, and and I think we found our level right, and mm -hmm. then we became more and more productive, and then we wanted to grow the team, and we had a fresh out of university person join us. And that was really interesting for us both because we got to bring someone up to speed who was an, a blank slate. Mm -hmm. 
And that was a really exciting experience for me personally to actually sort of be able to help someone on their journey from pretty much, I don't say nothing, obviously, if you've been to it, you've got a degree in computer science, you've, 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 you know yeah. a lot about it. But like, we also know that like, you know, it's like when you learn to drive a car, you pass the test and then you learn how to drive, Yeah. right? There's yeah. the second step of yeah. actually doing it for a bit. Um, but as you say, the sourdough starter, I feel that we had got it into a nice sit- situation where we could bring them along and that really, really helped them. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe anyway. Uh, and then, then when we added another person to the team, it was just a natural way. But it, that was not the kind of thing where we were throwing in the curveball that wasn't like the closure person came in and and we were and then learning back and forth that was definitely a very much a here's a blank template in the first case or here's an industry veteran who came in as like the fourth member of the team can we just make sure that they they fit in the role that we if it's three to three to one then it's a good chance that you're even those edge edges that you might have where you don't fit in exactly they get bumped knocked off pretty quickly or or, or else the whole team adapts a little bit which i think you know is is, is a natural process so yeah yeah. So yeah, sourdough starter. I like that. Right. I like that as an example for a, a decent little team that can can grow. But yeah, I, I think that metaphor works well. But I mean, so so the, all of those things then inform the technology. So if we're going back to the yeah. whole debate of la, like mono repo versus multi repo, like you might have a situation where there's like a one to many mapping from teams to repositories, right? where like each team manages a set of repositories. You might have a one-to-one mapping where like each team basically has what is effectively a mono repo. And even though that team might be building lots of different services, uh, maybe even unrelated services, Interesting. they all work out of the same mono repo because the tooling is there and the, and the flow is there. The utils dot. <laughs> you right. know, everyone's grab <laughs> yep, bag of like, that age. you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we just need the case insensitive string comparison routine, the same uh-huh, one that we copy paste uh-huh. into everybody or whatever it is. Yeah. So, so you can, th- if you think of things that way, then I think that the, 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 te- the technology choices become constrained in a good way. In that good way that you sort of have, like, you know, you were saying this sort of multi-dimensional problem that you need to try to solve. You take a few of the dimensions out and all of a sudden the possible solutions become a lot more easy to reason about. Yeah. Right. Interesting, yeah. And so, you know, a lot of those things can kind of kind of solve themselves in that way. A friend of mine once kind of mentioned, uh, and I had an observation that I thought was, was uh, really insightful once he said, uh, teams are immutable. And what he meant by that is every time you add or remove someone from a team, you don't have a different team, you have a new team. Because you have to kind of incorporate all of the needs and all of the abilities of that new person into the holistic team. and reconsider all the things that you've considered before. And some of us have very concrete situations where someone joins a team and all of a sudden there's a four hour meeting about why we do things a certain way, right? <laughs> like Well, yes. <laughs> and those some of us may have been the cause of those meetings. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Exactly. Exactly. Oh dear. Um and so it's it's like it is both an opportunity, a little bit of a burden perhaps, but an opportunity to sort of reevaluate why it is that you do things the way that you do and reassess them in the context of what is essentially a new team. And my point here is that the technology is sometimes the thing that changes after that, right? Like you have a new team. Sometimes the result of having a new team is that you need new technology. So it's sort of like, well, previously we used Make, and now we're going to use CMake. Or previously we used CMake, and now we're going to use Bazel. I don't know. Uh, or whatever it might be, right? Um, or even... 
on the subject of like the repo mono repo stuff there yeah. a lot of in my experience of the the arguments for and against those two things is, is again the tooling we've talked about like having teams if, if someone says well there's a tool that can make it easy to extract publish a library maybe we can now use conda yeah. or conan or vs code or insert pack maven everyone loves that yeah, one i yeah. heard <laughs> um to extract out some code and then and, and but now you get an interesting sort of side effect of that is that now you've changed the way you develop and maybe that's a positive, maybe that's a negative. You know, like we've all been in situations where versioning some chunk of code that's not, that used to be inside your repo where you could make a change mm-hmm. and then, you know, t- test how it works across a bigger code base in situ is a convenient thing to be able to do. Mm-hmm. And so you're like, well, that's an argument for a monorepo, right? If I have to refactor and change the name of this particular uh, interface – it just works. Like the refactoring tool takes a while, but it can refactor across the entire code base. Fantastic. Right, right. But also, we've also been in the situations where, like, well, I really want to break that API, but I don't want to do go through the pain of changing everyone who's using it right now. I'm mm-hmm. going to do it in my repo, and then everyone else can pin to a, the oldest version that does what they need, and I can move into a new version of that. And yeah. so there's a, there are trade-offs even along that dimension there. And so, yeah. yeah. I, sorry, I've derailed you from you talking about the new member to a team being – like creating a new I've team. derailed us completely, yeah, <laughs> creating a new team, yeah. And we've yeah, moved yeah. into something else, which I wanted to talk about actually anyway, which is these kinds of things, these kind of trade-offs. Yeah, Because yeah. what I just if – you, if you, I mean, unless you want to finish off on that point, is there no, something no, you I want mean, to that, def- my, my point was that that can change the technology of the team. And so I think it's actually kind of a natural thing to say, okay, what are the, some of the technology changes that can – Right, okay. Come, come across from <laughs> I don't want to jump the gun there. I no, don't no, <laughs> you, I think you were maybe like 30 seconds ahead of me. It was perfect. Perfect. Well, so yeah, that's one thing. So that that – can be a feature mm-hmm. that you can extract a library and then you like pull in version 1.0 of the library and yeah. all of that kind of stuff but that sort of begs the question or asks the question i should say because people will complain if i use the word beg to beg a question when nothing ever is actually begging a question <laughs> um is should you be at trunk all of the time yeah. because when you have yeah. a mono repo you are kind of by definition you're at trunk um at least for those kinds of changes right if i do a uh, a pull then if somebody edit, edited some library library i'm going to use air quotes for this library because it's just a subdirector of my back, my my mono repo then um i got the i've got the change immediately right that's mm-hmm. that's something i get straight away yeah it's more there's it's more of a um there's more decoupling there's a sort of clutch plate between um parts of the code if you use a sort of ci server to build a, and deploy a, a, a sort of compiled package that yeah. then you pull back down again into another project you've kind of got this uh, separation which can be a feature sometimes yeah yeah but if you don't live at the trunk all of the time if you if you allow yourself to float away there's a danger that you can float too far mm-hmm. and then one day you're like saying oh yeah yeah that bug that you fixed in version 2.7 can right. you backport it to version 1.8 because you know we never quite got around to it now it's a huge yeah. big deal yeah those are those are painful. I mean, what kind of trade offs? Other trade offs? What am I? What else am I missing in that? I'm sure there are tons of other things. And, and what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of trade offs there for sure. I tend not to use libraries as a form of dependency management to solve that problem if I can avoid it. Right. I, or it's maybe a better thing to say that I use them very intentionally. I use them when the difficulty to refactor across that library is again sort of like a feature and not a bug. Right. Like I want it to be difficult because of reasons. Right. And the reasons might be I don't want inexperienced programmers mucking with something that is very 
core to the business or very proprietary or very difficult to understand or whatever it might be. And so I'm going to encapsulate that in our library. Or I don't want non-programmers having to solve very, trying to solve very difficult software engineering problems like multi-threading or parallel computing. So I'm going to build a library that solves those problems on their behalf. And if I've done a good job of that, they will hopefully never have to reach right, the you guts sort of, of it. Tuck away tuck it away. Yes. Um, yes. almost as a just a, you know, putting the panel over something saying, you know, like, you know, like service warranty <laughs> yes, voided avoid if removed. Warranty, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Right. And I mean right. I don't want to say you know, that's that sounds yeah. uh sounds pretty bad because obviously anyone can look it through the code anyway. You could go find yeah. the source of that code. But but it's yeah. just an an extra sort of insulation layer that you're using right. again structurally within an organization to say like you you yes. don't need to go past it. Obviously there will be people who Yes, you want to encourage the cross-team communication that will be necessary if changing this code requires going to somebody else and being like, hey, can you change this function for me? You'd be like, actually, I can't, and here's why, right? Yeah. Uh, And have you considered maybe trying this instead? All those kinds of nice conversations that might never happen if you don't put those sort of speed bumps. Now, again, they are kind of speed bumps, and I generally don't like it because it sort of creates a slowness. You just want to do that intentionally. You only want to do that on the block with the kids playing sign. You don't want to do it literally on every street in the city, right? Um, So so I use it intentionally. The other thing that I tend to do is I personally tend to prefer breaking things out not as libraries but services. Uh, Not microservices, but I I had this phrase that I used a while ago called uh, one-second services to sort of like define this like approximate size of a service and how much behavior it should have. It's, it's, this is the first time I've said testing in this podcast. It's one second worth of unit tests. Oh my gosh. So about a thousand. We're about 30 minutes in and you said testing (laughs) only now. That's impressive. Yeah, I know. And I'm not going to talk about it I didn't have that on my bingo square. I'm not going to win this this (laughs) one. I'm so mean to you. (laughs) I deserve it. I deserve every minute. Um, but no, it's sort of like if you have one, if you have a thousand tests, that's about the size of a service that is nice to work with. It's not hundreds of thousands of lines of code. Obviously, the tests only take a second to run, so they run super fast. It's not a microservice. You don't have this thing where it's like, okay, I'm bundling up my single lambda function that's eight lines of pad left. <laughs> you know, pad left, right? As a as a service that you call, right? That's insanity, in my opinion. Um, but it's also not a giant, you know, monolith of right. a single service that's got like, you know, a huge interface to it and a thousand different things and connects to, you know, a database and a Redis queue and a Kafka queue and a, you know, DynamoDB instance and everything else in the world, right? But a second's worth of tests is just as good as anything of licking your finger and putting it in the wind. It's like, yeah, this is yeah, about the right. size that I mean. I just know instinctively the kind yeah. of level of complexity that comes with that amount of code. And obviously, yeah. you said a thousand yeah. tests there because the other sort of aspect of this is that the test should be fast, which we've talked about a lot. So we won't cover again here. <laughs> not going to talk, Let's about, not talk about that. Um, right. So yeah. you, you so, prefer uh, services. And I mean, all of these are APIs. They're different ways of making APIs, right? This is what I... The right, layering between right. software bit, like how you call into a library and you can't actually see the library because it's there's no code. You just got like a header or a couple of like uh, bits of uh, uh, frameworky stuff that you talk to, or you make it a service, and now you've kind of got some kind of RPC mechanism that again defines a very strong API and enforces it as well. Kind of, 
Yeah. I do see those things as a little different, though, because with the library, it's usually an all-or-nothing upgrade, right? You can't have four different versions of a library active in your application at the same time, Well, not without pulling heroic tricks, yeah. (laughs) Right. 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 Yeah, whereas, like, if you have an API, right, you can have backward compatible, like, if you're making a breaking change to your API that's not strictly additive, you can have both versions of that API live at the same time. Right. Oh, and interesting. Clients, clients can even use both versions at the same time. Right. Like they don't oh. have to make a choice of we're moving to version four. They can be like, well, for this section of the code, we use version three. And this section of the code, we use version four. Right. Very interesting. I'd never considered that. I mean, obviously, there is, there's got to be a cost to yeah. writing a service that seamlessly supports some number of older versions of it. Right. But, right. I can see the benefit that comes from it too, right? Yeah, as you say, this allows a sort of more transitioner, transitionary, that's not even a word, a more, <laughs> an easier way to transition between older and new code yeah, without yeah. it being the code, where the code is like, well, you're either calling, you know, Bob, uh, the f- Bob function with two arguments or the Bob function that takes a, a, some other completely different structure. Now, obviously, some languages will let you do some yeah. amount of overloading yeah. and no other trickery like that. And of course, you can have versioned bits of code and you can probably do that with libraries as well and kind of pull in bits of this library and like enable – there are various tricks to do it, but it's very clear and clean in a microservice environment. Yeah, potentially. You have, the, you have at least the opportunity to do that. And then if you can align those with the structure of your teams such oh. that you know the services that interact with other teams have very stable APIs – and the services that interact within a team have more flexible, dynamic APIs because maybe the team has a single monorepo with its 12 services in it and all of the external-facing APIs have you know, hard-worn integration tests, but all the internal APIs can all be deployed at once because it's all a big one monorepo. And if you want to change mm-hmm. the signature between three services, that's fine because they all get deployed at the same time anyway. Then you can do a lot of cool stuff with that. And it's just it's all about being cognizant of the boundaries between the people and how that reflects in the boundaries in the code. Got it. So you talked about deploying there in terms of like deploying mm-hmm. a whole bunch of services. And obviously that fits together if you, uh, you have a, a, exactly as you describe a, a, a team that's, that's got all these microservices in one kind of gob that yeah. they can deploy. But in general deployment, especially when you have got tiered things like V1, V2, V3, V4, yeah, there's yeah. usually a lot of machinery to make that work. There's some kind of, dispatching system somewhere higher up that you can like, well, I want this microservice to appear here in some logical uh, space. How does one deal with that kind of stuff with, with regards to, you know, experimental stuff maybe? Can I make, do you, what, how, what do you think? How, like may, maybe I've got like some, um, I'm rewriting a server and I want to like deploy it uh, somewhere else. Should I be doing that in trunk? Should I be making a branch and then deploying that in some other namespace thing? How, yeah. how do things like that work in, what, what, Talking about that, that seems. I mean, I will tricky. say that I have never built a system. I mean, there are a lot of people that are going to be way more experts on this than me um, in terms of building systems with like hundreds or thousands of running services, you know, deployed on AWS with all different kinds of versions and stuff like that. And I'm not going to, if you're, that's what you're doing, you should not listen to me because I've never done that before. <laughs> and right. I have maybe even intentionally avoided finding myself in that kind of situation because there's a lot of. There's a lot of stuff going on there. The the systems that I have built where I think that this model works well are systems where you have sort of dozens of services 
all of which are large-ish. They're these kind of like one-second-sized services, right? Where they're, it's not you know millions of lines of code. It's also not eight lines of code. But it has a non-trivial amount of responsibility. Right, right. And so, and so, and some subset of those services are dependent on each other in potentially breaking ways. And most of the time, what I've done has been able to deploy the things that are hardened against each other as a unit, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, if you've got three services that all need to change together, then they all get deployed together. There's not even an option to deploy them one at a time. But for the things that do have sort of those harder interfaces, you can deploy them independently, and that's what you plan to do, right? So if you're going to change an API, you're like, all right, we're going to introduce the new API in service cluster A, and then we're going to update service cluster B to use the new API and then we're going to go back after that's done and everybody's happy and remove the old API from service cluster A, right? And you do that in sort of a three-step process, right? And that's kind of just the way that I have done it for these types, this type of structure. But, Got you it. know. I have just been recently doing a whole bunch of work off on my own little um, branch of a big, big code base. It's essentially a monorepo for all intents and purposes for in its own domain, right? There's a lot of mm-hmm. different people and different ways of writing code that are all in that same repository. It doesn't represent the whole company's code or, at all or even like the whole domain's code, but it, it has a monorepo feel to it. And so I've been in the world of making changes on the side uh, in my branch and then obviously suffering the pain of merging in all the time to try and keep myself up to up to pace. But there is another world in which I could have done all of this in 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 trunk and mm-hmm. i know like at again big work web search engine company feature flags are the way forward for that mm-hmm. and i mm-hmm. and i've done, i've done those things i've used feature flags for like turning stuff on and off but it can be very difficult to do that well especially when you're making structural changes yeah right? it's very hard to say well i redid the class hierarchy behind a feature flag you're like well now you've just got two entire copies of the code base <laughs> right right and right. somewhere you have to make that switch and and so i'm i'm thinking i've been thinking about it. i realize it's sort of this is slightly tangential to the things that we've been talking about but it sort of fits into the workflows and how teams work mm-hmm. there is a there is a world in which everybody lives in their own branch and they kind of occasionally merge back into a, a, a master or or a, a main branch a main trunk Mm -hmm. of development and i guess just channeling what i've learned from you this in this conversation right again it's let the teams find the right right way to do that if if it works well for having people maybe breaking off one or two at a time and going off and doing something Mm -hmm. and then bringing it back to the the center then that then go with it but Mm -hmm. yeah I had a conversation today with two people that work in that very same repository that you're talking about, <laughs> uh, okay. which shall remain unnamed. And um, we were talking about do- them doing some work in another repository that is just the three of us. It's me and the two of them. And I was oh. telling them, you guys don't need to send me PRs. You can just put your, your work right into master, right? Um, because the so- there is the benefit of the sooner you get it into master, the sooner I can start coding against it, right? If you've changed some method signature or some class hierarchy, the the sooner I see that change and integrate it into my own work, the less painful it's going to be for me. So I want you to do that as soon as possible. And if that means that you need to check in code that's not running yet because it's been disabled by what is effectively a feature flag, right. I would prefer that to you sending me uh you know sending me a PR and then doing all your work on a branch and all the other things that kind of go go along. I mean with that. there's definitely yeah there's a benefit to that. 
Uh, yeah. There's definitely a thing on the like. I, I have a personal extreme, and we haven't got enough time left for me to go on a wax and lyrical about next like, time, how to next do time. A, next time how to do a good pull request. But certainly, yeah. a way to do a bad pull request is to drop a like hundred file PR on someone because yep. you've been working away uh, in in your in isolation for 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 six weeks. So yeah. we'll come back to that another time. Yeah. But it, does that not encourage people to check in like slightly not ready code? Well, I think one way that you can balance that is with continuous deployment. So if if your policy is code that's pushed to the trunk automatically gets deployed, assuming that it goes through the continuous deployment pipeline, then that's sort of setting the standard for, for code that gets shared. With, yeah, I mean, uh, I think it was Michael Feathers. I keep quoting him. A code is a way we treat our coworkers. It's just like, you know, not filling up the coffee machine, right? Or, you know, leaving your three-week-old lunch in the office refrigerator. And so for me, a reasonable approximation for is this code good enough to inflict on my coworkers is, is it good enough to go to production or is it good enough to get deployed, basically? And so coupling those okay. two things together to where whenever you push to the trunk, it's going to go to prod. So you better make sure that it's not completely terrible right? It's not perfect. There are certainly ways in which you can write code that, you know, isn't going to negatively affect the production environment, but will negatively affect your coworkers. Um, right. But it's, it's a, it's a, it's a sort of strong enough correlation where I, personally, I'm, I'm a big fan of that. Now that it's more measurable yeah. than, than just dissatisfaction of your colleagues, right? <laughs> right? Which is harder to measure. Right. Maybe once a year during the, you know, peer review that it might come up, but it might be a bit late. Right, 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 right. So, yeah, I think that's a reasonable way to do it. And then, of course, that implies, given all the things I was saying earlier, that the organization of your code is such that that is also the unit of deployment, right? Because uh, otherwise, yeah, yeah. if you can't do that, right? If you, if you have to deploy a bunch of things together and it deploys automatically, then practically what's probably going to happen is that they're all going to be in the same repository. And now you have what is essentially a monorepo, but just for those things, right? Yep. Otherwise, you're building very complicated tooling to make all that work. I was just to make that yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, the tooling is is the other solution uh -huh. to that problem. Yeah, uh, but it, it amounts to the same thing, isn't it? Like if you can carve off an area of the problem space and make it work in this way through it being in its own repo, through tooling to make it that way, uh, to to isolate uh, a unit of deployment, testing and deployment, and then have this kind of uh, thought process where you say uh, check into the trunk and then and then like. You don't need to do pull requests or anything mm -hmm. like that mm -hmm. because you the 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 standard that which you hold yourself to to say is this going to this will go to production as soon as I as I as I commit it kind of is the barrier now yeah. I I can get behind that but I think pull requests have other benefits mm -hmm. which we can talk about in maybe a pull request related I think we should uh, do episode. a whole topic on pull requests. On pull requests and trade code offs. review or trade-offs. Yes. Yeah. I'll add it to the list since we have a list You added to that list we were talking things. about. Fabulous. <laughs> there you go, everybody. This is how we do things. And I can actually look, I can see his cursor moving around in the document now. <laughs> He's not even lying, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, my God. Okay. Pull well, requests. you type that. Yep. And I will, <laughs> as I say, I have very strong opinions. And I have a number of open source projects. And I get to be on the receiving end of a lot of reviews for those things. And I've developed strong opinions on those. So we can talk about that some other time. Yeah. Cool. All right, my friend. Well, we've. We've we've definitely covered a whole bunch of stuff, and uh, we made it up as we went along, mm -hmm. which is kind of how we do it always, right? Yeah, it is. There's no pretense here that there's a heavily scripted aspect to this uh, this extremely high high production right? value. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah. But one thing we've never been really good at is is ending podcasts because, you know, we're just chatting and then they were like, oh, I guess we should finish now. So I guess we should finish now. And cut. You've been listening to Two's Compliment, a programming podcast by Ben Rady and Matt Godbold. Find the show transcript and notes at twoscompliment.org. Contact us on Twitter at 2CP, that's at T-W-O-S-C-P. Theme music by Inverse Phase, inversephase.com.